20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Jules Verne, From Cape Horn to the Amazon. How I got onto the platform, I have no idea. Perhaps the Canadian had carried me there. But I breathed. I inhaled the vivifying sea air. My two companions were getting drunk with the fresh particles. The other unhappy men had been so long without food that they couldn't, with impunity, indulge in the simplest ailments that were given them. We, on the contrary, had no end to restrain ourselves. We could draw this air freely into our lungs, and it was the breeze, the breeze alone, that filled us with this keen enjoyment. Ah, said Conseil, how delightful this oxygen is. Master need not fear to breathe it. There's enough for everybody. Ned Land didn't speak, but he opened his jaws wide enough to frighten a shark. Our strength soon returned, and when I looked around me, I saw we were alone on the platform. The foreign seamen in the Nautilus were contented with the air that circulated in the interior. None of them had come to drink in the open air. The first words I spoke were words of gratitude and thankfulness to my two companions. Ned and Conseil had prolonged my life during the last hours of this long agony. All my gratitude could not repay such devotion. My friends, I said, we're bound one to the other forever, and I am under infinite obligations to you both. Which I shall take advantage of, exclaimed the Canadian. What do you mean, said Conseil? I mean that I shall take you with me when I leave this infernal Nautilus. Well, said Conseil, after all this, are we going right? Yes, I replied, for we are going the way of the sun, and here the sun is in the north. No doubt, said Ned Land, but it remains to be seen whether we'll bring the ship into the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean, that is, into frequented or deserted seas. I couldn't answer that question, and I feared that Captain Nemo would rather take us to the vast ocean that touches the coasts of Asia and America at the same time. He would thus complete the tour around the submarine world and return to those waters in which the Nautilus could sail freely. We ought before long to settle this important point. The Nautilus went at a rapid pace, the polar circle was soon passed, and the course shaped for Cape Horn. We were off the American point, March 31st at 7 o'clock in the evening. Then all our past sufferings were forgotten. The remembrance of that imprisonment in the ice was effaced from our minds. We only thought of the future. Captain Nemo didn't appear again either in the drawing room or on the platform. The point shown each day on the planisphere and marked by the lieutenant showed me the exact direction of the Nautilus. Now on that evening, it was evident to my great satisfaction that we were going back to the north by the Atlantic. The next day, April 1st, when the Nautilus ascended to the surface some minutes before noon, we sighted land to the west. It was Tierra del Fuego, which the first navigators named thus from seeing the quantity of smoke that rose from the natives' huts. The coast seemed low to me, but in the distance rose high mountains. I even thought I had a glimpse of Mount Sarmiento that rises 2,070 yards above the level of the sea, with a very pointed summit, which, according as it is misty or clear, is a sign of fine or wet weather. At this moment the peak was clearly defined against the sky. The Nautilus, diving again under the water, approached the coast, 
which was only some few miles off. From the glass windows in the drawing room I saw long seaweeds and gigantic fuci and varic, of which the open polar sea contained so many specimens, with their sharp polished filaments. They measured about 300 yards in length, real cables thicker than one's thumb, and having great tenacity, they're often used as ropes for vessels. Another weed, known as velp, with leaves four feet long, buried in the coral concretions, hung at the bottom. It served as a nest and food for myriads of crustacea and mollusks, crabs and cuttlefish. There, seals and otters had splendid repasts, eating the flesh of fish with sea vegetables, according to the English fashion. Over this fertile and luxuriant ground, the Nautilus passed with great rapidity. Towards evening, it approached the Falkland group, the rough summits of which I recognized the following day. The depth of the sea was moderate. On the shores, our nets brought in beautiful specimens of seaweed, and particularly a certain fucus, the roots of which were filled with the best mussels in the world. Geese and ducks fell by dozens on the platform and soon took their places in the pantry on board. When the last heights of the Falklands had disappeared from the horizon, the Nautilus sank to between 20 and 25 yards and followed the American coast. Captain Nemo didn't show himself. Until the 3rd of April, we didn't quit the shores of Patagonia, sometimes under the ocean, sometimes at the surface. The Nautilus passed beyond the large estuary formed by the Uruguay. Its direction was northwards and followed the long windings of the coast of South America. We had then made 1,600 miles since our embarkation in the seas of Japan. About 11 o'clock in the morning, the Tropic of Capricorn was crossed on the 37th meridian, and we passed Cape Frio, standing out to sea. Captain Nemo, to Ned Land's great displeasure, did not like the neighborhood of the inhabited coasts of Brazil, for he went at a giddy speed. Not a fish, not a bird of the swiftest kind could follow us, and the natural curiosities of these seas escaped all observation. This speed was kept up for several days, and in the evening of the 9th of April, we sighted the most westerly point of South America that forms Cape San Roque. But then the Nautilus swerved again and sought the lowest depth of a submarine valley, which is between this cape and Sierra Leone on the African coast. This valley bifurcates to the parallel of the Antilles and terminates at the mouth of the enormous depression of 9,000 yards. In this place, the geological basin of the ocean forms, as far as the Lesser Antilles, a cliff to three and a half miles perpendicular in height, and at the parallel of the Cape Verde Islands, another wall not less considerable that encloses thus all the sunk continent of the Atlantic. The bottom of this immense valley is dotted with some mountains that give to these submarine places a picturesque aspect. I speak, moreover, from the manuscript charts that were in the library of the Nautilus, charts evidently due to Captain Nemo's hand and made after his personal observations. For two days the desert and deep waters were visited by means of the inclined plains. The Nautilus was furnished with long diagonal broadsides which carried it to all elevations. But on the 11th of April it rose suddenly, and land appeared at the mouth of the Amazon River.
a vast estuary, the embouchure of which is so considerable that it freshens the seawater for the distance of several leagues. The Devilfish For several days the Nautilus kept off from the American coast. Evidently it did not wish to risk the tides of the Gulf of Mexico or of the Sea of the Antilles. April 16th we sighted Martinique and Guadeloupe from a distance of about 30 miles. I saw their tall peaks for an instant. The Canadian, who counted on carrying out his projects in the Gulf by either landing or hailing one of the numerous boats that coast from one island to another, was quite disheartened. Flight would have been quite practicable if Ned Land had been able to take possession of the boat without the captain's knowledge. But in the open sea it could not be thought of. The Canadian, Conseil, and I had a long conversation on this subject. For six months we'd been prisoners on board the Nautilus. We had traveled 17,000 leagues, and as Ned Land said, there was no reason why it should come to an end. We could hope nothing from the captain of the Nautilus, but only from ourselves. Besides, for some time past he'd become graver, more retired, less sociable. He seemed to shun me. I met him rarely. Formerly he was pleased to explain the submarine marvels to me. Now he left me to my studies and came no more to the saloon. What change had come over him? For what cause? For my part, I didn't wish to bury with me my curious and novel studies. I had now the power to write the true book of the sea, and this book, sooner or later, I wished to see daylight. The land nearest us was the archipelago of the Bahamas. There rose high submarine cliffs covered with large weeds. It was about eleven o'clock when Ned Land drew my attention to a formidable pricking, like the sting of an ant, which was produced by means of large seaweeds. Well, I said, these are proper caverns for pulps, and I should not be astonished to see some of these monsters. What? said Conseil. Cuttlefish? Real cuttlefish of the cephalopod class? No, I said, pulps of huge dimensions. I'll never believe that such animals exist, said Ned. Well, said Conseil, with the most serious air in the world, I remember perfectly to have seen a large vessel drawn under the waves by an octopus's arm. You saw that, said the Canadian. Yes, Ned. With your own eyes. With my own eyes. Where, pray, might that be? At St. Malo, answered Conseil. In the port, said Ned ironically. No, in a church, replied Conseil. In a church, cried the Canadian. Yes, friend Ned, in a picture representing the pulp in question. Good, said Ned Land, bursting out laughing. He's quite right, I said. I've heard of this picture, but the subject represented is taken from a legend, and you know what to think of legends in the matter of natural history. Besides, when it's a question of monsters, the imagination is apt to run wild. Not only is it supposed that these pulps can draw down vessels, but a certain Olaus Magnus speaks of an octopus a mile long that's more like an island than an animal. It's also said that the Bishop of Nidros was building an altar on an immense rock. Mass finished, the rock began to walk and return to the sea. The rock was a pulp. Another bishop, Pontopidon, speaks also of a pulp on which a regiment of cavalry could maneuver. Lastly, 
The ancient naturalists speak of monsters whose mouths were like gulfs and which were too large to pass through the Straits of Gibraltar. But how much is true of these stories? asked Conseil. Nothing, my friends, at least of that which passes the limit of truth to get to fable or legend. Nevertheless, there must be some ground for the imagination of the storytellers. One cannot deny that pulps and cuttlefish exist of a large species, inferior, however, to the cetaceans. Aristotle has stated the dimensions of a cuttlefish as five cubits, or nine feet two inches. Other fishermen frequently see some that are more than four feet long. Some skeletons of pulps are preserved in the museums of Trieste in Montpellier that measure two yards in length. Besides, according to the calculations of some naturalists, one of these animals, only six feet long, would have tentacles 27 feet long. That would suffice to make a formidable monster. Do they fish for them in these days? asked Ned. If they do not fish for them, sailors see them at least. One of my friends, Captain Paul Bose of Havre, has often affirmed that he met one of these monsters of colossal dimensions in the Indian seas. But the most astonishing fact, and which does not permit of the denial of the existence of these gigantic animals, happened some years ago, in 1861. What is the fact? said Ned Land. This is it. In 1861, to the northeast of Tenerife, very nearly in the same latitude we're in now, the crew of the dispatch boat Elector perceived a monstrous cuttlefish swimming in the waters. Captain Bouguer went near to the animal and attacked it with harpoons and guns without much success, for balls and harpoons glided over the soft flesh. After several fruitless attempts, the crew tried to pass a slipknot around the body of the mollusk. The noose slipped as far as the tail fins, and there stopped. They tried to haul it on board, but its weight was so considerable that the tightness of the cord separated the tail from the body, and deprived of this ornament, he disappeared under the water. Indeed, is that a fact? An indisputable fact, my good Ned. They proposed to name this pulp Bouguer's Cuttlefish. What length was it? asked the Canadian. Did it not measure about six yards? said Conseil, who posted at the window, was examining again the irregular windings of the cliff. Precisely, I replied. Its head, rejoined Conseil, was it not crowned with eight tentacles that beat the water like a nest of serpents? Precisely. Had not its eyes, placed at the back of its head, considerable development? Yes, Conseil. And was not its mouth like a parrot's beak? Exactly, Conseil. Very well. No offense to master, he replied quietly. If this is not Bouguer's cuttlefish, it is at least one of its brothers. I looked at Conseil. Ned Land hurried to the window. What a horrible beast, he cried. I looked in my turn and could not repress a gesture of disgust. Before my eyes was a horrible monster worthy to figure in the legends of the marvelous. It was an immense cuttlefish, being eight yards long. It swam crossways in the direction of the Nautilus with great speed, watching us with its enormous staring green eyes. Its eight arms, or rather feet, fixed to its head, that have given the name of cephalopod to these animals, 
were twice as long as its body and were twisted like the Fury's hair. One could see the 250 air holes on the inner side of the tentacles. The monster's mouth, a horned beak like a parrot's, opened and shut vertically. Its tongue, a horn substance, furnished with several rows of pointed teeth, came out quivering from this veritable pair of shears. What a freak of nature! A bird's beak on a mollusk! Its spindle-like body formed a fleshy mass that might weigh four to five thousand pounds. The varying color, changing with great rapidity, according to the irritation of the animal, passed successively from livid gray to reddish-brown. What irritated this mollusk? No doubt the presence of the Nautilus, more formidable than itself, and on which its suckers or its jaws had no hold. Yet what monsters these pulps are! What vitality the Creator has given them! What vigor in their movements! And they possess three hearts! Chance had brought us in presence of this cuttlefish, and I didn't wish to lose the opportunity of carefully studying this specimen of cephalopods. I overcame the horror that inspired me, and, taking a pencil, began to draw it. Perhaps this is the same which the elector saw, said Conseil. No, replied the Canadian, for this is whole, and the other had lost its tail. That's no reason, I replied. The arms and tails of these animals are reformed by renewal, and in seven years the tail of Bouguer's cuttlefish has no doubt had time to grow. By this time other pulps appeared at the port light. I counted seven. They formed a procession after the Nautilus, and I heard their beaks gnashing against the iron hull. I continued my work. These monsters kept in the water with such precision that they seemed immovable. Suddenly the Nautilus stopped. A shock made it tremble in every plate. Have we struck anything? I asked. In any case, replied the Canadian, we shall be free for we're floating. The Nautilus was floating, no doubt, but it didn't move. A minute passed. Captain Nemo, followed by his lieutenant, entered the drawing room. I hadn't seen him for some time. He seemed dull. Without noticing or speaking to us, he went to the panel, looked at the pulps, and said something to his lieutenant. The latter went out. Soon the panels were shut. The ceiling was lighted. I went towards the captain. A curious collection of pulps, I said. Yes, indeed, Mr. Naturalist, he replied, and we're going to fight them, man to beast. I looked at him. I thought I hadn't heard right. Man to beast, I repeated. Yes, sir. The screw is stopped. I think that the horny jaws of one of the cuttlefish is entangled in the blades. That's what prevents our moving. What are you going to do? Rise to the surface and slaughter this vermin. A difficult enterprise. Yes, indeed. The electric bullets are powerless against the soft flesh where they don't find resistance enough to go off. But we shall attack them with the hatchet. And the harpoon, sir, said the Canadian, if you do not refuse my help. I will accept it, Master Land. We'll follow you, I said, and following Captain Nemo, we went towards the central staircase. There, about ten men with boarding hatchets were ready for the attack. Conseil and I took two hatchets. Ned Land seized a harpoon. The Nautilus had then risen to the surface. One of the sailors, posted on the top ladder step, unscrewed the bolts of the panels. 
but hardly were the screws loosed when the panel rose with great violence, evidently drawn by the suckers of the pulp's arm. Immediately, one of these arms slid like a serpent down the opening, and twenty others were above. With one blow of the axe, Captain Nemo cut this formidable tentacle that slid wriggling down the ladder. Just as we were pressing one on the other to reach the platform, two other arms, lashing the air, came down on the seaman placed before Captain Nemo and lifted him up with irresistible power. Captain Nemo uttered a cry and rushed out. We hurried after him. What a scene! The unhappy man, seized by the tentacle and fixed to the suckers, was balanced in the air at the caprice of this enormous trunk. He rattled in his throat. He was stifled. He cried, Help! Help! These words, spoken in French, startled me. I had a fellow countryman on board, perhaps several. That heart-rending cry, I shall hear it all my life. The unfortunate man was lost. Who could rescue him from that powerful pressure? However, Captain Nemo had rushed to the pulp and with one blow of the axe had cut through one arm. His lieutenant struggled furiously against other monsters that crept on the flanks of the Nautilus. The crew fought with their axes. The Canadian, Conseil, and I buried our weapons in the fleshy masses. A strong smell of musk penetrated the atmosphere. It was horrible. For one instant, I thought the unhappy man entangled with the pulp would be torn from its powerful suction. Seven of the eight arms had been cut off. Only one wriggled in the air, brandishing the victim like a feather. But just as Captain Nemo and his lieutenant threw themselves on it, the animal ejected a stream of black liquid. We were blinded with it. When the cloud dispersed, the cuttlefish had disappeared, and my unfortunate countrymen with it. Ten or twelve pulps now invaded the platform and sides of the Nautilus. We rolled pell-mell into the midst of this nest of serpents that wriggled on the platform in the waves of blood and ink. It seemed as though the slimy tentacles sprang up like hydra's heads. Ned Land's harpoon at each stroke was plunged into the staring eyes of the cuttlefish. But my bold companion was suddenly overturned by the tentacles of a monster he'd not been able to avoid. Ah! How my heart beat with emotion and horror. The formidable beak of a cuttlefish was open over Ned Land. The unhappy man would be cut in two. I rushed to his succor, but Captain Nemo was before me. His axe disappeared between the two enormous jaws and, miraculously saved, the Canadian, rising, plunged his harpoon deep into the triple heart of the pulp. I owed myself this revenge, said the captain to the Canadian. Ned bowed without replying. The combat had lasted a quarter of an hour. The monsters, vanquished and mutilated, left us at last and disappeared under the waves. Captain Nemo, covered with blood, nearly exhausted, gazed upon the sea that had swallowed up one of his companions, and great tears gathered in his eyes.